Some of you might be traveling in the next couple of days, traveling to visit family, traveling to stay with family. And it's always really infuriating when you've got a long journey ahead of you and you're faced with a setback. Um, I can think about traveling between Ammonford and Mid Wales. I know those roads pretty well. I used to go to school in Llandovery. And when now I'm driving it, I know that after a certain bend, there's a nice long stretch straight ahead. And it's frustrating sometimes when you turn a corner and you expect to be able to put your foot down and get back up to a decent speed only to see a setback in front of you. Sheep in the road. Or maybe the experience you may have had driving and you overtake a Sunday driver and as soon as you get past them, what do you find? Temporary traffic lights. Um, the journeys that we make in our cars are often filled with setbacks. Things which seem to impede us and stop us from getting to or reaching our destination in the time frame that we want. And the book of Ruth is a book that is filled with setbacks, knife edges, cliffhangers, right the way through, from the beginning through to the end. Think about it. Chapter 1, it begins with hope, doesn't it? That there might be food down in Moab that the family of Elimelech and Naomi and the children, that they would leave Bethlehem, they would head to Moab, and there they would find life. There they would find survival. That's the hope. But then there's a setback. Death. More death. Yet more death. And the cliffhanger is this. Will the daughters return with Naomi? And will they even survive? Or will they succumb to the same dreadful fate? Then there's chapter two, which begins with hope. Ruth meets Boaz, and he seems like the perfect man for her. He's a relative, which in line with the customs and the laws was an important thing. He was a godly man. He seems to admire Ruth, the beautiful Moabitess. So there's hope, and yet the setback. He's too dumb, it seems, to see that she's interested in him. He takes care of her, but nothing more. There is no marriage proposal, just a friendly, kind face and a wave. So the cliffhanger is, as she hangs around, as she stays gleaning in his fields from one harvest to the other, will there be any more encounters? Is Boaz going to catch on to what's right in front of him? Is he going to buck up the courage to ask her to be his wife? Chapter 3 begins again with hope. Naomi comes up with this cunning plan. Wait until he's in the right frame of mind. Wait until February the 29th so that you can go and make the marriage proposal to him. Force the issue. Put the ball back in his court. Boaz, shocked? Yes. But he's thrilled too. You thought of me above younger men, rich or poor. But then there's another setback. Actually, we find out that he's not the one legally, culturally responsible who can marry Ruth and take her husband's place. There's another that's dictated, should at least be given the opportunity to do that, a closer guardian redeemer. And so we're left with this cliffhanger in the form of Naomi's wisdom, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning.
nearly our final time in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And we're in chapter 4. Let's read that together. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down, and then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, Sit here. And they sat down. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, so that you can buy it back in in the presence of those seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me, so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, this man answered. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Then the Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Hilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Did you spot those hints, those movements of hope, of setback, of cliffhanger. The hope is that Boaz, going to resolve the situation, finds the man he's looking for. He goes to the gate and it just so happens that this guy is walking by. But then there's a setback. Because when he first offers the the Redeemer a chance to buy the land, it seems like this other fellow is keen. It seems like this other fellow wants to jump at the opportunity. Cliffhanger, okay, so it all goes right in the end. Boaz um, puts him off with the offer of Ruth into the mix as well. Um, says in front of everyone that he is going to buy back the land and buy back the woman. But then there's the prayer, the desire of Boaz to perpetuate the name of Marlon. There's the prayer of the community that this family line will be continued. And the cliffhanger then is this question, will Boaz and Baron Ruth have children? You know, there are times in this story, as readers, I can't imagine what it must have been like for those participating, 
when we're just tempted to throw our hands in the air and say, I give up, oh for goodness sake. You can imagine, can't you, Naomi? I came to Moab to live and now the men I had have died. Oh for goodness sake, says Ruth, I was batting my eyelids at you, Boaz, and you didn't even flinch. Oh for goodness sake, says Boaz, you feel the same way about me, but there's somebody else in the frame. It's setback after setback after setback. And for many, no, for all of us, that is precisely what life is like. Just when we think there's an open road around the corner, we can change up gear and really start to live, we find sheep in the road. After we've overtaken that Sunday driver, we're excited about putting the new TDI into action, temporary traffic lights. And if we learn anything from the, the whole story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, the providence of God, it's that there is something better to come. That while the road may be windy and potholy, ultimately it leads to God and to his glory. Now this can be especially frustrating when the setbacks seem to be because of our righteousness, because we have decided to do something in the right way, in the right fashion. That's exactly the setback that we find at the end of chapter 3. Boaz isn't content with sneaking off in the night and marrying Ruth so that the other gentleman doesn't have the opportunity to exercise his rights. No, he wants to do what's right. He wants to do what's honourable. He wants to do what is customarily and in the law the proper thing to do and it provides a setback. And where the life in general throws setbacks at us because we live in a broken world, we are broken people, there are broken people around us. Or if that setback is because we have decided to listen to the voice of God and to follow him, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, does it, with how we feel. Those setbacks can still be extremely frustrating. The book of Ruth which shines a light for us on the providence of God, shows us that even in setbacks, God is preparing his people, preparing a path to glory, preparing a path to better things. Now, I don't say that to mean that if you hang in there desperately enough, just round the corner are riches and wealth and relationships and perfect kids, because we all know of people whose lives have come to an end and there's still just been mess. There's still been struggles. There's still been disappointment and darkness. Now that's, that's not the promise of the providence of God. I mean this, that in the hands of God, even our setbacks, even our setbacks are for our good and his glory. The book of Ruth, teaches us that in the midst of setbacks, we don't need to blame God, but we can count to 10 before we grumble against God. It's not the main point of the book, but it's there and it's worth noticing. And I think it may help us today to note this fact, that if we're walking the God path, as we so often talk about in this church, setbacks are simply that, setbacks. They aren't the end of the road. They aren't the destination changed and finally met. And sometimes, oftentimes, God uses them 
to get us to where he wants us to be when he wants us to be there. Setbacks in the hands of God are for our good and for his glory. So let's count to 10 before we grumble against God. You know, I think by the end of this book, by the end of Ruth, Naomi would have wished that she counted to 10 before changing her name to Mara, to Bitter by Deedpool, because she saw at last God's hands even in the setbacks. But is there anything else to learn? Is there anything else that we can glean, especially from chapter 4 and this legal discussion, this legal thing that happens? I think there's plenty in this chapter in particular which points us to Jesus and helps us to see more clearly who he is and understand what he has done for us. And perhaps the best way for us to unpack that this morning is just to consider two words that are used in this passage, redemption and inheritance. They're both clearly important in this chapter and in the whole book, and they help us to see exactly what it is that Jesus was bringing into the world as we celebrate Christmas. So what about redemption? I mean, what do we understand by that word anyway? Redemption is something that's done by someone for someone else. If there's a legal aspect to it, you do A, you get B, we see that in the story. In one sense, redemption is a privilege. In another sense, it's an obligation. We see that again in the story and how the two people, the two guardian family redeemers view it. It has a cost, but then it also has a potential reward. And it's total. It's not partial. It's personal as well. It's not just about the transaction of a field property. There are people involved, one set of people acting on behalf of another. And we see all of those in this story. And all of those things point us to Jesus. Because it's redemption that's so often used to describe what it is that he came to do for his own bride. You see, the whole Bible story is that we are in Ruth and Naomi's shoes. That we are destitute, that we are indebted to others, that we are unable to truly provide for and care for ourselves. We're, we're dependent on the grace and mercy of those around us. And yet, says the Bible, yet says the story of Scripture, Christ comes to pay the price, to redeem our lives from slavery, from living off scraps, redeem us to a beautiful marriage as his church. Paul puts it like this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We read about Boaz and his other relative haggling back and forth, considering the full implications of redeeming, of paying the price the cost involved in not just the land, but the people as well. And surely we're supposed to think of Jesus. Jesus, the one who paid the price in his own blood. It's interesting in chapter 4 that initially the other gentleman, the unnamed character, is willing to redeem the field. He's done the maths in his head and the cost... He has to literally hand over money to buy it. The cost is worth the reward. Yet, 
for whatever reason, when Ruth is factored in, he says this is too great a cost. I cannot pay this cost. The cost outweighs the reward. Boaz had to pay a similar cost though. Financially, he had to pay to buy the fields back. Perhaps what the other gentleman was worried about was a, was a slight on his reputation, marrying a Moabite woman. Boaz has got to swallow that sort of social stigma as well. Certainly Boaz is unmarried and childless himself, so he's forfeiting his own name in order to perpetuate the name of his brothers. See, Boaz isn't just willing to redeem the land. He isn't just willing to redeem Ruth and Naomi but he's willing to pay the cost. And we see that in Jesus's life too, don't we? We hear things from Jesus, like when he weeps over Jerusalem, oh, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen. Quite reminiscent of uh, chapter three, isn't it? He had that desire is there. But what about when the, when, the, when the cost is laid bare, when the cost is made clear in Gethsemane? When the weight of what lies ahead begins to fall on his shoulders, what does Jesus do? He doesn't shake his head and retreat into the shadows. He presses on, presses forward at great expense to himself. We have, said Paul, redemption through his blood. This isn't just financial. This isn't just relational uh, baggage that's being taken on. This is Jesus willing to give his very self to buy us back. Ruth's redemption really did depend on the wealth and the love of Boaz. And ours depends on the price our, our Redeemer was willing to pay, the wealth he had and the love that caused him to spend it for our sakes. <clears throat> I wonder this morning whether you've ever recognised that in the message of Jesus, the Saviour, the Redeemer. That that salvation wasn't cheap, but it was immensely costly. That we have been bought not with perishable things like silver or gold, but by the perfect blood of the Lamb. I wonder whether you've ever thought that there must be such a love that underlies that, that is willing to spend and, and, and to meet that cost for our sakes. See, the story of Boaz redeeming Ruth is a story of one who loves and is willing to pay the price. It's a little story that, that shines a light on the bigger story of the one who loved us, who were lost, indebted, and was willing to play, pray, pay the ultimate price to have us won back. There's a second word, though, that I said I wanted us to think about, not just redemption, that personal act, that privilege, that obligation, that costly thing, which Jesus has done for us. The second word was inheritance. Let me just reread to you for a second um, this verse, which has bounced around my head over the years a hundred times this week, even. Verse 6 The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He's saying, I cannot possibly 
redeem all of that, Ruth and Naomi and the land, lest I impair my own inheritance. I can't, it'll cost too much. Now we've thought about that already a little bit. Before you shoot this guy and a, a look that could kill, just think about where he's coming from. It's a position which certainly lacks compassion, but really at some point in another, to one degree or another, we've all thought it, haven't we? We've all weighed up a situation and said too much cost, too little reward. He's offered to the land, yeah, that seems fine, but a land animal by death, woman he doesn't know, might damage everything. So let's not be too harsh on this guy, but think about why that inheritance is is such an important thing to him and it's such an important idea in the book of Ruth. It's because this attitude that we'd all share wasn't the attitude of Boaz and it certainly wasn't the attitude of Christ. Something which they had, they wanted to share. Do you see? The first unnamed gentleman, he already had enough and he didn't want to act in any sort of way that would rob him of that. But Boaz, pointing us to Christ, was one who had what he had, already enough, and was willing for that to go out, and for that inheritance to become someone else's inheritance. The Bible describes us, the church, believers as the bride of Christ, and you can see how that mirrors and matches in the book of Ruth so wonderfully. But it also describes us as children of God once we believe in Christ, once we've been brought into his family. And in the book of Romans, Paul takes this to the logical conclusion when he writes, Now if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, what belonged to Boaz came to belong to Ruth and the wider family. And what belongs to Christ, he put on the line. He spent in order to redeem us so that we might share in that richness, that we might enjoy that inheritance. Sometimes we can think of coming to faith, the Christian life, as simply getting away with or getting away from guilt, shame, disgrace, whatever it is. And we need to see, we need to see in the story of Ruth and in the larger story of the Bible that the, the, the message, the hope, the good news of, of being made right in Jesus is that we're not just saved from, but we're saved to an inheritance a glory, a life eternal, a relationship with the Father. What he has, he gave so that we might live and we might enjoy it. Super stuff, isn't it? To think that Jesus loved us in such a way that he did not withhold and he did not withhold to the extent that we might share and enjoy in all that he had. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. Paul, again, speaking about Jesus, says, He who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider that something to be, to be used, to be grasped at, to be kept close and tight to himself. Rather, he spent it all. 
He made it all um, available. He became nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, became obedient even to death, death even on a cross. Jesus spent eternal glory. He came down, we celebrate it next Saturday, to scratch about with his enemies so that he could die to redeem us. That is the most wonderful news. How fortunate are we that Christ's attitude is like Boaz's, not the other guy. Not like the guardian redeemer who shakes his head and walks away. How fortunate are we that we have a redeemer who gave everything for us, everything that he had, even his final breath, so that we could share in what was already safe and secure in his hands. I want to just finish now by reading some uh, words to a song that have have uh, spoken to me. Um, they're words to a song that we'll sing together at the end of this. Speaking about Christ, our Redeemer, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, my only saviour before the holy judge, the lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm held by his grace. I will glory in my Redeemer, who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness, his triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer, who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. That is what we have. That is what we have in Jesus, our Redeemer. One who paid the immense cost so that we could enjoy all of the benefits. If that doesn't move you to celebrate this morning, if that doesn't move you to weep as you worship next week when we think about Christ come into our broken world, then I'm not sure what will today. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for what Boaz did for Ruth. For how you were involved in that situation and you were working things for their good and for your glory. But we thank you so much more this morning that Christ was to come. That Christ was to come to put all things right. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to savour it. Help us to sing about it today. That our hearts, the flame, the joy, the gratefulness would be kindled in us. That we would lift his name up. That we would sing about our Redeemer. That we would enthuse about our Redeemer. That we would give thanks to our Redeemer. Because he gave everything so that we could have everything. Thank you. In Jesus' name.